Well, we're going to jump into our teaching this morning. I've been looking forward all week to this teaching. I can't wait for us to dive into our study today. And we're starting a series that I believe is going to be life-changing for us as individuals and life-changing for us as a church. We're beginning our study today into the life of Jesus Christ. And if you've never studied the life of Jesus Christ in depth, here's what I know. I know that Jesus in reality is different to what you think he is. He's better than what you think he is. He's more amazing than who you think he is. And we're going to find that out week after week as we get to know the real Jesus of the Bible, who he really was. And many of you know that all scripture essentially points to Jesus. The entire Old Testament foreshadows the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, which kicks off the start of the New Testament. And so today I thought we'd start by taking a look at some of the things the Old Testament says about who Jesus is. So we're going to jump in today and we're going to look at what the Old Testament has to say about Jesus. Just a few things and you're going to be blessed by this today. So a great question is, is there a way to know if the Bible and Christianity are true? Is there a way to know? We can't all become professors of archaeology. We can't all learn all the techniques and go and date the scrolls ourselves and translate the Hebrew character by character. So is, is there a way for us here and now today to know if what we believe or what we're studying is true? Does the Bible self-authenticate in a way that no other religion ever has or ever will be able to? That's what we're going to be talking about today. This is a quote from a book called A Survey of Old Testament Introduction by Gleason Archer. It says this, There is in the Holy Scripture a form of evidence which is discoverable in no other religious document known to man. That is the phenomenon of prediction and fulfillment according to an ordered plan followed by a God who is sovereign over history. No one could suppose that he would enjoy accurately fulfilling the predictions he might make concerning the future. Occasional human predictions might come to pass, but in the scripture we have many hundreds of predictions which are revealed by God and which are later fulfilled in the events of subsequent history. So this is the test that we can do. God says, I'm going to tell you what is going to happen in history. I'm going to call it. And because I'm God, I can make it happen and I will make it happen. So this is the test. And one of the, the great myths about Christianity is the idea that you somehow have to check your, check your intellect at the door if you want to be a person of faith, that you have to choose between intellect and reason and logic or faith, that faith eliminates the other ones. And the truth is that nothing could be further from the truth. As you begin to dig into the empirical evidence for the Christian faith, you'll be confronted with irrefutable facts that can leave you with only one conclusion. And in order to not believe them, you simply have to ignore them or be unwilling to believe them. And we're going to look at some of this today. Predictive prophecy creates a piece of evidence that must be examined. It must be examined. You can't simply say, yeah, but what about? If you're saying yes to this and acknowledging that this is true, you're confronted by some very, very serious questions about the reality of Jesus Christ and who he was. And they can't be ignored. And as the prophecies pile up, you'll find that the evidence becomes overwhelming. And you are left with a statistical fact 
that Jesus has to be who he claimed to be. There is such a thing in statistics as statistical certainty, and there is a number, a ratio, that is recognized in statistics as impossible. There's a number that's designated as impossible. It's also sometimes referred to as statistical absurdity is the actual scientific term as well. And this is going to come into play as we jump into this today. So because there are time constraints, we're only going to take a look at one aspect of predictive prophecy this morning, but it's mind-blowing. The, the Old Testament was written over a period of about 1,500 years by various authors who we believe were all inspired by the Holy Spirit, led by God to write what they write. And each of those authors is pointing in some way to this person, Jesus Christ, And this is one more way that God is showing off because he's taking different authors in different times and different locations with different relationships and giving each of them a piece of the puzzle so that the Messiah would have to fulfill all of these prophecies by different peoples in different times and different places. Pretty hard to pull off. Pretty hard to pull off. So let me just share a couple of these prophecies with you. In in Isaiah 9-6, we're told who the Messiah would be. Isaiah 9, 6 says this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so put this down on your outlines. This prophecy is telling us he's going to be God. He's going to be the Father. Remember, Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. But he's also going to be a child that is born unto us. He's going to be a child that is born unto us. And all Christians, whatever denomination you belong to, believe that Jesus Christ is God. That's the dividing line between Christianity and every other belief system, is we believe Jesus Christ is God. If you're a conservative church that sings hymns and stands up and sits down to fight, fight, fight seven different times in a service, or if you're a Pentecostal where you swing from the chandeliers every Sunday, we all have one thing in common. We believe that Jesus Christ is God. That's what unites all of Christianity. We believe that Jesus Christ is God. So one aspect of these prophecies concerning the Messiah is that he would become a man. He would become incarnate. He would take on flesh and bone. We don't really have time to study a couple of other things this morning, but I want to give you a couple of things to to check out when you get home. Take some time and read Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 when you get home. They were written over 700 years before Jesus was born, and they lay out how Jesus would die. Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. You're also going to want to read Psalm 22, which is quoted by Jesus while he's on the cross. And it's a picture given from the perspective of somebody hanging on a cross, looking around at what's going on. There appears to be a conversation going on between three people, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Again, hundreds of years before Jesus is crucified. In the book of Micah, written about 700 years before Jesus was born, it says in chapter 1, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old. How old? From everlasting. Now, now don't just read this and go, oh, that's cool, that's cool. You really need to get this. Bethlehem is not a budding metropolis. Bethlehem is a village somewhere 
in the size of three to five acres. That's it. It's small, like smaller than Coquitlam Center. Small. An entire village. So hundreds of years before Jesus is born, God says, I'm going to call it now. Bethlehem. He'll be born in Bethlehem. Not some picture that you have to interpret four different ways. He says, Bethlehem. He's going to be born there. It's really hard to fake where you're born. Like it's really hard to do in an age where there's no internet. Everybody knows everyone. Everybody doesn't only know you in your village. They know your family history and they know your family line. So he says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. I'll call it right now. And and then it happens. That is statistically ridiculous. God says, "I'll, I'll call it now. Bethlehem. It's Bethlehem. You can write it down. Okay, yeah, just wait and see. I'll be right. You'll see. So we know that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, but also he's going to have existed forever, whose comings forth and goings are from old. How old? From everlasting, it says. So he's born in Bethlehem, but he's existed forever. Not a lot of people make that claim, right? How old are you? I'm eternal. I've never heard anybody say that. If I did, you know, I'd probably be like, can I pray for you? But uh, this is what we're told, that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, but he will have existed forever. Now, when the Messiah appears, we'll also see that he's going to do something that most kings don't do. In about 500 BC, it's written that he would present himself as a king, but very differently to how most kings would present themselves. In Zechariah 9.9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, which is just another name for Israel. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. So this Messiah is going to do something specific. He's going to bring salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Does this ring a bell for anybody? Does this ring a bell for anybody? I feel like I've read about this some other time. So this is Palm Sunday. Again, called hundreds of years before Jesus ever did it. We find out that the Savior is going to bring salvation, and he's going to come riding on a colt. That's really, really specific, right? Really specific. But what king would ever present himself in so lowly a manner? I've never seen a rapper show up to an award show riding on a colt. Not even one time. But somehow this guy's going to show up presenting himself as king, riding on a colt, and he's going to be welcomed as king while riding on a colt. That's, again, really hard to pull off. I don't know if you mount a donkey and ride through any city in the world, I don't know that anyone in any city in the world is going to go, hail king, as you come riding in on a donkey. But we're told when this guy does it, he'll be welcomed as king. He'll be welcomed as king. In 500 BC, in Zechariah 11, 12 through 13, It says that the Messiah would be betrayed with silver. And this is what it says. It says, I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, so notice this is the Lord speaking now. Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Again, don't go, oh, that's neat. Like, like, think about this. 
500 years before Jesus is born, the Bible says the Messiah is going to be betrayed. But just because I'm in a giving mood, I'll tell you the price that he'll be betrayed for as well. 30 pieces of silver. I'll call it right now. Half a millennium before it happens, he calls it. And the potter thing, hang on to that for one second. Because Judas, we know the story, once he's betrayed Jesus, is filled with remorse. And he goes back to the chief priests and the elders. And he just says, take the money back, basically. And they're like, hey, this blood is on your hands, essentially. So he throws it into the sanctuary of the temple. Then he goes and kills himself. So what happens to the money? In Matthew 27, 6, it says this, But the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And, if they, cons- and they consulted together and bought with them the money, the potter's field, to bury strangers in. Zechariah 11, 500 years before, says, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. Like, come on. Like, stop it. That's ridiculous. God's like, hey, he's going to be betrayed. Here's the price. Here's what they're going to do with the money afterwards. They're going to buy something from a potter. That's really, really, really specific. And I hope there's something in you now that's beginning to say, there are way too many moving parts here piling up for anyone to possibly pull this off. There's, there's just way too many moving parts, too many characters, too much time, too many places, too much specificity. But this is what we have in Scripture. Then about a thousand years before Jesus was even born, we're told that the Messiah would be crucified. Jumping back into Psalm 22. In verse 16 it says, For dogs have surrounded me. And in, in Hebrew culture at that time, dogs was a term used for Gentiles. You'll remember the Gentile woman comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, hey, the food is not for the dogs. And she says, yeah, but the dogs still get the scraps that fall from the table. And so, it, I mean, it wasn't really a kind term, but they would refer to Gentiles as dogs. So it says, for dogs have surrounded me. Jesus is on the cross, surrounded by Romans. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. You're going to want to underline this if you're there in any of your Bibles. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So look at that verse. They pierce my hands and my feet. What was the form of execution in Israel in 1000 B.C.? Anybody know? Stoning. Stoning. Absolutely. You'd be stoned to death. Crucifixion won't even be invented for 700 more years. 700 more years. Pretty incredible. But here we have in Psalm 22 a description of Jesus being crucified. Zechariah is an incredible book of predictive prophecy, and and one of the time periods it talks about as well is actually the end times, which we would say is the period we're living in. Specifically, that time in the future when the Lord is going to open the eyes of the nation of Israel and allow them to see that he really was the Messiah. Again, we don't have time to unpack all of this today, but to give you the Cliff Notes version, right now, uh, Israel as a nation, as a people, is in an age of spiritual blindness. They cannot recognize Jesus as the Messiah. There's not going to be a great revival in the nation of Israel until the day that the Lord says, okay, now, 
Now I'm going to let them see. And suddenly they're going to recognize who Jesus was, that he was the fulfillment of all the prophecies. He's the one they're waiting for. Here's what it says in chapter 12, verse 10 of Zechariah. I will pour out on the house of David, again, just another name for Israel, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, very specific city, the spirit of grace and of supplication. So they will look on me, whom they have pierced. Again, pierced hundreds of years before crucifixion. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the weeping over a firstborn. So it's describing this moment when suddenly God is going to allow Israel to recognize who Jesus was. It says they're going to weep bitterly like you would over the death of your firstborn. They're suddenly going to realize what they've missed for several thousand years. This is still written in 500 B.C., 200 years before crucifixion is even invented. Now, th- this is huge. This, this is really huge. Because I think we would all agree what's being described in Zechariah hasn't happened yet, right? Hasn't been a mass revival in the nation of Israel of them, them all turning and recognizing Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Hasn't happened yet. This is an unfulfilled prophecy. So here's where this gets crazy. Jerusalem has to exist for this prophecy to come true, right? Like it's named by name. There have to be people there. It's implied that this is where Israel, the nation, is. Israel has to exist as a nation in order for Zechariah 12 to come true. This is where it gets really, really interesting. For over 2,000 years, right around 2,000 years, Israel didn't even exist as a nation. Israel didn't even exist as a nation. Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in, any Bible scholars in the house? 70 AD, thank you. That's the disgrace, by the way. We have a Bible college student in the house. Literally? Really? So 70 70 AD. (laughs) 70 AD is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, but basically Jerusalem's done. Israel is done, becomes for all intents and purposes pretty much a wasteland, scattered and uh, inhabited here and there. But Israel as a nation, done. Prophecy lies unfulfilled. Would you agree that it's not looking good when you're hitting year 1,000, right, and there's still no turnaround? I think at that point there's not a lot of people saying, hey, man, just, just a few more weeks, any day now, any day now, year 1500 since your entire place was destroyed. There's all kinds of potential issues that come up here. So they're there, and uh, it's a long time off, long time off, more than a little break, I'd say, more than a little break. And then in 1948, the most ridiculous thing happens. It's amazing. It's worth studying even on your own. The outcome of World War II, the Holocaust, when it's all said and done, is Israel becomes a nation again in 1948. In one day, God moves, chooses to move through the United Nations, and boom, they say, oh yeah, we've got, we got to give these guys a homeland. Let's give them Israel. Israel becomes a nation in one day, just like that. One day, just like that. Suddenly, everything changes. And, and this is really important because there's all kinds of prophecies that whenever people don't understand them, we tend to go, oh, it must be some allegory or some picture. It can't possibly mean what it's actually saying. And a lot of people were saying that. That was the generally held theological position during the time that Israel did not exist as a nation after the ascension of Christ. 
people said it's just impossible for this to be literal. There's only a few really devoted, hardcore Bible theologians that said, listen, I know it looks impossible, but Scripture is explicit on this topic. Israel has to exist as a nation again. It has to happen. And then when it does, suddenly, oh, whoa, the prophecy is back on. doesn't look so crazy all of a sudden. doesn't look so crazy. But there's something really interesting in Zechariah 12 that, that's in all the original documents of Scripture but isn't in our translations. And the reason is that the translators did, didn't really know what to do with it. They're still not entirely sure what to do with it. But that part of verse 10 in Zechariah 12 where it says, they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will look on me whom they have pierced. Right after the word me in the original manuscripts, there are two letters that don't make it into your English translation. They're not in your Bible. And the reason for this is, again, they weren't entirely sure what to do with them. So what are these, what are these two letters? What are these two letters? So, um, Jana, let's put up the, the Hebrew alphabet. I want to show you guys what the Hebrew alphabet looks like. So Hebrew is one of the languages that's actually written from right to left. It's written from right to left. So the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph, which is the one in the top right. And the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Tav, which you see in the bottom left right there. And in all the original manuscripts, it says they will look on me whom they have pierced. And after the word me, it's not a word. There's just two symbols. The Aleph and the Toth appear in all the original manuscripts. First letter of the alphabet, the last letter of the alphabet. We, we might say they will look on me, the A and the Z. That's what we would say. Or if we were to say it in Greek we would say they will look on me, the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha and the Omega. It's very, very interesting that the me in that verse that Israel is looking at is the first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega. That's why in Revelation 1, we see Jesus saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Who is? He's alive today. And who was, he was on the earth 2,000 years ago and existed forever before that, and who is to come. And guess what? He's coming again. The Almighty. In Zechariah 13, 6, we read, And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? Then he will answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. In the house of my friends. So Jesus was crucified in essence, by his own people. They didn't drive the nails into his hands. Soldiers did, but he was sold out, essentially, by his own people, his friends. And here's just what I want to point out again. They bear an enormous part in the murder of Jesus, but we know that it was predestined before the foundations of the earth that Jesus would die. And here's what you need to notice. This is what Jesus says about the Jews, his own people. He calls them his friends. He calls them his friends after they've crucified him. That's why there's no room in the church for any anti-Semitism because he calls them his friends. And if Jesus does, I don't know that you want to be lining up on the other side of that argument. I would just say it's, it's good theology to side with the friends of Jesus. It's just really, really good theology. It's a good idea, a very, very good idea. Psalm 22 opens with the line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
That's what Jesus is speaking on the cross, crying out in his anguish. And I promise you, it's an incredible study if you go home and read the rest of Psalm 22, because that's what Jesus is doing. He's implying the rest of Psalm 22 as he opens Psalm 22 by quoting it on the cross. Go and read what it says in your own time. It's a worthwhile study. And then we jump to verse 7 in Psalm 22. He says, All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. If you read the gospel accounts of the crucifixion, you'll see that that's exactly what plays out as Jesus is mocked on the cross. In 560 BC, 560 years before Jesus is born, in Daniel 9.26, we're told when the Messiah would be crucified. We're given the window and the time point in history. Jesus, God says, I'll narrow it down a little bit for you, just to help you guys out. It says this, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, an outpouring, until the end of the war, desolations are determined. So when this Messiah is killed, when he's cut off, the next sort of major event in world history will be that the city and the sanctuary will be destroyed. In the context that we're talking about, there's, there's really only one place this could be where the sanctuary was. It was in the temple, capital T, in Jerusalem. And again, like I said, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Jerusalem and the temple are utterly destroyed. The Romans have just had enough of these troublesome Jews. They burn the temple to the ground and then burn it again to melt all the gold inside of it so that it drips through the bricks and they can get all the gold out. Totally destroy the entire temple, 70 AD. So in the flow of history, here's what we know. We know according to Daniel, the Messiah would have to be killed before Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. And they're put together in scripture so that it's implied that you have the death of the Messiah and pretty much the next major notable world event is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. This is sort of the order that things are happening in. So if you notice when you look at those verses, you'll see it gives a little bit of detail. It says the city will be destroyed with a flood. The idea is an outpouring that will accompany it. And the idea when you look at the original language is not a literal flood like Noah's Ark sort of flood, but it's more an, an outpouring. And we call this event in history the diaspora. And the diaspora is essentially what happens when they destroy Jerusalem in 70 AD is the Jewish people are scattered all over the world at that point, most of the known world that people were inhabiting. They go all over the place. They go to Brooklyn, they go to Boca, they go, they go all over the place. They end up all over the world. They are everywhere except Israel and their own homeland. That's called the diaspora. That is the scattering of the Jewish people that happens to fulfill this prophecy as well. And then it says, until the end of the war, desolations are determined. All this is saying is it's saying there's going to be a fixed time period that God has allotted after Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. There's this time period and God says it's going to be desolations. All you need to pick up from that is it's going to be bad. There's not really going to be the nation of Israel living in the nation of Israel. Just desolation is what the area will be able to be described as. God says there'll be a fixed period. And in the realm of prophecy, in the realm of history, it's clear that there was a fixed period, and that ended in 1948 when Israel became a nation again. 
Isaiah told us that when the Messiah died, he would be put in a rich man's grave. This is a very, very different end to most crucifixions. Most crucifixions, they basically take your body down and throw it on the side of the road as sort of a final affront and insult to your family. They desecrate your body basically by doing that or just leave it on the side of the road to rot and be eaten by animals. But this is no, when, when the Messiah is crucified, he's gonna end up being buried in a rich man's grave. Again, very, very, very hard to fake and sort of put together. In Isaiah 53, 9, it says, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. You'll recall that Joseph of Arimathea comes and takes the body of Jesus and puts it in his own tomb. And he's given the body of Jesus. They don't say to him, no, you can't have it. They give him the body of Jesus, and he's buried in a rich man's tomb. And God tells us why this happens. Continuing on, it says, Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And so God says, yes, normally the body is desecrated, but this is my son. This is my boy. I'm not going to let that happen in this case. He's going to be buried in a noble manner. And the Heavenly Father sees fit to make that happen. And, And all of this is incredibly important because here's what I want you to get out of this. When your faith is assaulted by somebody who claims that all the intellectual evidence leans in the other direction, You have to have some things to go back on. You have to know why you believe what you believe. And I love it when people dig into the faith. Because once you start digging into the faith, you'll realize you don't have to be scared of what you're going to find. You're simply going to find more and more evidence that Jesus really was who he says he is. And here's why this is important too. Because it means we have a God who knows how to make promises. And we have a God who is so sovereign and so powerful that he's able to keep those promises. He doesn't write checks that he can't cash. So when God gives you a promise, you don't have to wonder if he's capable of keeping his promise. He's done it across centuries. He's done it across the millennia. He's kept his promises in spectacular fashion. I'm pretty sure he can take care of you and me. But track this with me. This is where it gets really interesting. If I said, Let's do like a manhunt. I need you guys to help me find somebody. This person's a dude. They're a man. You'd go, okay. Well, we've eliminated 50% of the population roughly. We've got about three and a half billion people. Anything else you want to give me? And I said, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, he was born in Cape Town, South Africa. You'd say, oh, okay. Well, I think that just cut down the number from 3.5 billion to probably several million. Probably several million right now. It's two points so far. And then I said, well, he's born in 1982 as well. Go, okay. Okay, now we're, now we're probably down to 100,000, maybe, if that. And I said, uh, let's narrow it down some more. So we've gone from 3.5 billion to maybe 100,000 in, in, in three details, three details. And then I say, well, he graduated from Fraser Valley Distance Learning Academy because he was homeschooled during the 12th grade. Would you say that would narrow it down a little bit? I, I'd say at, at that point, four details in, it's highly probable there's only one person who, who fulfills those criteria or already at four. And I, and I said, so here, here, here's what's interesting about that is that Fraser Valley Distance Learning is in, British Columbia, Canada. And this person was born in South Africa. So that, that's a pretty big detail 
that really narrows things down. Now I keep going, and I said, but I'll also let you know this guy spent uh, three years working at a church in Temple, Texas during his early 20s. Well, that should uh, narrow it down or basically confirm the identity of the person we knew after the fourth detail. We're five details in if you're keeping track. But how about this? I say, um, also, this guy has five kids so far. Uh, also, he, he pastors a church in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia. And, uh, and uh, also, he has a smoking hot wife named Charlene. <laughs> this could be anybody, really, you know? I gave you eight details. And the first one was, he's a dude. Eight details in. Eight details in. So, so what is the statistical probability that that person could be anybody else other than me? I would say it's, it's zero. It simply, it simply can't be. It's just not possible. And so God wanted to do this in such a way that there is absolutely no other possibility except that Jesus is who he claimed to be. That's the only explanation. It's the only explanation. God says, if you want to dig into the evidence, go for it. But you need to be warned. There's, there's only really one conclusion you can come to. Jesus is who he says he is. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And get, get this. We did eight details there. The Bible gives around 300 prophetic details about the first coming of Jesus. Right around 300 prophetic details about the first coming of Jesus. And even more amazing is the fact that there are about three times as many about his second coming, which we don't have time to talk about today. There's around 900 prophecies related to the second coming of Christ. So you can take your faith and you can put everything on it because it's the only faith that can self-authenticate. It's the only faith that can self-authenticate. Other religions might have a prophecy or two that could be vaguely fulfilled, but Christianity is the only religion that is consistently built on prophecy and fulfillment. And not just future prophecy, but prophecies that have been fulfilled, historically documented, irrefutable, unarguable, requiring no real interpretation. Just here's a fact, and a thousand years later it happened exactly as it was written. Like, you've got to do something with that. You've got to do something with that, unless you have your mind set on not being open to the possibility that Jesus Christ really is who he says he is. God says it's going to happen, and it happens. He's the only one who can do that. He's the only one who can do that. And as we said, th this matters, because you need to know you have a God who can keep his promises. He's able to do it. So when you look at your life and you say, I, I don't know that God is really capable of taking care of me. I don't know that God is really capable of healing my marriage. I don't know that God is, is really capable of guiding my life. I don't know that I'm really gonna find happiness in Christ. Just remember, he's a God who doesn't just make promises. He's a God who keeps promises. And he can orchestrate whatever events he needs to orchestrate in order to keep his promises. There's nothing that can happen where God says, oh man, I can't keep my promise anymore because that happened. Oh, my whole plan is messed up. 
This is, this is the way to view God. God stands outside of time, surveying all of time at the same time. At the same time. It's literally more than our minds can understand, but you gotta understand, he's seeing all of time, the whole time. And I think this is why Jesus says things. He's, he's like, why are you worrying? <coughs> and for him, it's almost absurd because he's literally already looking at the time in your life when he's been faithful and he's come through. He's already seeing it. And he's like, what, what are you worrying about now? Why are you so full of fear? Why are you so full of doubt? It's like, I already see where you are in five years, a year, 10 years. Why, why are you worrying now? If you could see it, you'd find your anxiety absurd. So when God says, trust me, he's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our trust. He can take it to the bank. 